Welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Pianci, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, Mr. Bennett Tomlin. How are you today? I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I am doing good. We are joined by a very special guest and longtime friend of the show, Substack blogger at Hot Takes and marketing executive on sabbatical, Mr. Adam Singer. How are you doing today? I am most excellent to finally meet both of you virtually. Obviously, this would be more fun over beers, but um, you guys are legends. I was listening to your podcast when I think it was, you know, you just had a few hundred followers for like the Twitter account. And I don't know if you still have the logo with like the Wojak with the bleeding. I don't know if that's still there, but I remember that. And yeah, so so you guys have been consistently awesome. And I, I think the world of you, so... Well, we appreciate it, and uh, and it's great to have someone who's in marketing with a, a conscience on the show today. There's, like, there's five of us. There's like five of us. <laughs> <laughs> Bennett and I have previously tried to kind of delve into some of the aspects that we see issues with in regard to marketing and cryptocurrency. Also kind of this weird meshing that a lot of the venture capitalists seem to want to do between news and marketing. Uh, we talked about that with Coinbase Media. But you actually wanted to join us. So I'd love to get you to start us off on like what has pushed you to the edge of wanting to discuss skepticism in marketing. Sure. So, I mean, that, that is a broader question than just crypto. I'll answer more broadly first just because it's more fun and maybe give context to everyone else. And then we can talk more crypto specifics since your audience is thirsty for that. Um, so the marketing sector is really, has always been seen as sort of the clowns of the business world. There's no nice way to say it. <laughs> uh, and so it's always been, if there's a downturn, marketing is cut first. Um, if ever there are big decisions to be made at, you know, large S&P 500 companies, frequently, you know, CMO doesn't even get called into the room, CFO and CEO unilaterally make the decision. Um, you can go from COO or CTO to CEO, but it's almost unheard of to go from CMO to CEO, right? So we're sort of relegated to this box. And the reason being is marketing historically was a practice that was completely faith-based, right? So you were basically, you know, taking whatever TV ratings were giving you or Nielsen numbers and saying, oh, we reached this many million people. We did our job to get the brand out there. They weren't accountable from actually running an ad or running a campaign and saying with definitive numbers, here's the return on investment, the ROI of this campaign and to make a case with data, hey, what we're doing is working. We should do more of this and less of the things that aren't. Now, to be fair, a lot of companies have modernized. They are using analytics now. You see really sophisticated companies like, actually a good example of this is not tech, is uh, the casino industry. They know price elasticity of every table game on that casino floor by hour of day. So they know exactly what they can charge you at a given hour and actually fill the table. They apply the same uh, BI team to marketing. So they factor in not just their historic data, not just uh, competitive data. They factor in like S&P and macro econ data to be able to figure out what the appropriate price is for that hotel room. So those are the really sophisticated marketers. And by the way, uh, Vegas casinos are very profitable businesses. And also from a marketing perspective, it is a wonderful, you know, high customer service from when you walk in to when you get to your room to, you know, when you go to the pool, it's all a great experience and experience is marketing, right? The, the, the whole reason you go is that story and all of the aspects that go into, you know, your whole trip is marketing. Okay. Let's talk about the bad. So of course there's big CPG that's obvious, but actually within the tech industry, and I'm not going to call anyone out specifically because I don't have to. Um, you get a lot of marketers who are very old guard and come from, you know, a big consumer company world and are brought in because basically a lot of these tech companies, the recruiting teams are very good at engineering and they, everything else in business is exactly the same, like sales, marketing, HR, they, they know the same amount about all of those. And so you end up in situations with large tech companies that 
one side of the business, the end side is using data. The marketing side doesn't even know how to open an analytics tool, right? So the, you can see how this would frustrate me as someone who worked on Google Analytics for you know seven years. I built multiple online courses. As part of being at Google, I you know wanted to show marketers the value of being data driven. Obviously, if you use search ads, you can measure the results of if people are clicking through and buying. But surprisingly, a lot of tech firms, it is still hippos highest paid person's opinion, making the decisions. And so that's why as well, you see average uh, CMO tenure is two years in corporate America. And the reason is that's long enough to try a bunch of stuff, you know, maybe win some bullshit, you know, advertising awards and then leave without too much damage being done and being able to go on to the next thing. So it's this big musical chairs. And from the top down, the, the, the actual tactical work on so many teams i saw this as a consultant and in-house where the marketing team their entire week literally consists of meetings where they sit and they debate not so much like pantone colors like in fight club but like things that matter even less like the wording of a tweet like it, the amount of time that big companies spend <laughs> on a tweet that like a fraction of a, a rounding error of their followers will see would completely blow your mind and so like it, it, these are things that obviously are due to late stage cycle. Uh, you know, companies haven't done layoffs in a while. Um, you know, everyone has been feasting on just, you know, up and to the right returns and the Fed printing a ton of money and VCs going nuts. And so, you know, it's, it's, it needs to, the, the craft is a joke for the most part. You bring up a really interesting point to me because you're talking about this concept that all these marketers are, I assume, paying a ton of close attention to the wording of a tweet in the hopes that if it's worded appropriately, it'll go viral. If, I don't know, let's say you are a cryptocurrency lending company and the wording of your statement about FDIC insurance is totally off base and made up, like... It doesn't seem like marketers are necessarily concerned with stuff like that at all. Yeah, that's even scarier if you have marketers who aren't following compliance. In the TradFi space, um, I was at a company called Lex Markets for about a year, and this will shock you. So there was more compliance for me to do something like run a video ad than there was to when I was at a healthcare company running ads about, you know, people making decisions for uh, BRCA cancer tests, right? Like there's more barriers in TradFi than there is in pharma and healthcare in America. That blew my mind because the, the life science team and they're a great company, um, their lawyers actually trusted me as a marketer. I think it was probably the company culture. They, they made really, really, really thoughtful hires. The founders are like off the chart, brilliant geneticists. And so, there was a lot of trust there. And on the TradFi space, you know, I was, I was being, you know, not by my team, but by FINRA, which is the org that governs all of these TradFi organizations that are on like the NASDAQ rules. And it's frustrating because at no point was my marketing was very, 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 you know, straightforward, not overpromising. you know, it, it, it was, as as one would hope a fiduciary company would do look we were selling shares of commercial real estate assets stabilized properties they don't go up and down and you know take 20 percent swings you sit and collect a check if you own a position and it's really boring stuff and basically the thumb we were under was insane while at the same time as you were mentioning for crypto marketers i was watching crypto firms make insane promises about 20% APY, about Dogecoin to the moon. I mean, the ads were just, it, it was, I, I showed my compliance guy what we were up against and I'm like, so TradFi is gonna lose to all of these DeFi companies and crypto companies because they're saying insane things to kids that we could <laughs> never say and they're making it look real. And so it was very frustrating for me because, and I sent things to FINRA and I'm like, you, got, you guys are, you know how the SEC goes after like deep fucking value and like these random people? Yeah. Like instead of like big hedge funds, it seems like FINRA was just like, 
standing in the way of stupid things because they have nothing else to do and you pay them big fees versus actually do like the important work. Like they were changing words that didn't matter. And, you know, even with my lawyer hat on, I'm like, that actually doesn't change anything, guys. You just want to piss on it. So I, thankfully, I'm not under the thumb of FINRA anymore and I can say whatever <laughs> I want. But it's a, it's like because I, I think they're so gun shy due to whatever happened in the last financial crisis. There's so much PTSD there. They're like afraid to step on their own toes. But at the same time, it's like, you know, th there comes a point where regulatory, like being so far in the in the weeds of what all of the companies under your governing bodies do, that you're actually hampering their ability to, to do the right things and contrast that with crypto where there is no regulation. So at least from a marketing and comms perspective, they may have over-indexed on compliance for people just trying to sell Vanguard index funds. And that's dangerous because now you have people who are making crazy promises and you can't even have the adults like make a decent sales pitch. So, so it, it's interesting. Yeah. So when you're thinking about like marketing and trying to create accurate, honest and responsible marketing, how do you think of like the division of responsibilities there? How much is like the marketer's responsibility to make sure the things they're creating for these clients, for these companies, whatever, are accurate? How much is it the company's job themselves to make sure the marketing they're releasing is accurate? And like, how do you see regulators, like you mentioned FINRA, but also for a lot of advertising, the FCC or other things like that, fitting into the picture of responsible marketing? So just like in every other regulatory area, the FCC is asleep at the wheel. It, consider them as toothless as the SEC. We, we all know how little they do for the actual bad actors. Um, the company is accountable for marketing. The buck stops with, you know, it should stop at a real company with the CMO. They should be empowered enough to ship campaigns. But obviously, if, you know, some promise is made in the market that wasn't delivered on by the product or the company, like that's a problem, right? And so when you're talking about like trust in advertising, the reason a lot of people don't trust advertisers is because a lot of advertisers make bad promises. You look at something as simple as the QSR, the quick serve restaurant industry, where in their ad they serve a, it looks like a beautiful burger, beautiful Whopper from Burger King, and you go in and it is depressing as hell. And you know, it's, you don't see those fresh vegetables and you know, they, they, they don't dress the food. They, they literally dress it for, for ad shoots. And so the, have you seen, um, have you seen falling down? I know this I have. Is yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, God, that there's such a wonderful, I just, for anyone who's <laughs> listening, I recommend at least that scene of falling down. He goes to a, a burger joint and he wants the breakfast burger or whatever. And they're like, oh, sorry, it's a minute past 11. And he loses his shit completely. And then he just wants a burger and they give him a burger. And he's like, do you see what's wrong with this picture? And he like, he totally loses his, uh, loses his shit. But yeah, it's, it's just very reminiscent. It's all coming back to me in floods of like, this is not new in, yeah. in some sense, right? Like this is, this is an ongoing issue that's been, it's been going on for decades yeah, and decades. The now. good I mean, news here, the good news here is let's put regulatory aside for a minute and let's say any company can go hog wild and say whatever they want, make whatever crazy promises they want, um, which a lot do already. So if you play that story out for long enough, thanks to the internet and transparency and social media and online reviews and our ability to share directly with each other, your false promises come back to you nearly instantaneously. And that is actually a cool thing because you see brands like Chewy is a great example. They're the new generation pets.com. They did everything, you know, that pets.com did wrong right at the right time. They go so far above and beyond, not just with product and delivery and service, but I saw a story where someone had said to Chewy, they'd sent that person their recurring dog food order and their dog died, sadly. And they sent a uh, note to them. Hey, I don't, you know, need this you know, need this box of dog food because my dog passed away. They're like, please keep the dog food. And the, like the whole Chewy team sent a note to them, like saying, you know, we're so sorry in this time of need, right? Like the above and beyond level of customer service there, they're over delivering on the product. They're over delivering on that brand promise. Actually, Amazon love or hate them now in their early days to win customers. Like Je Jeff Bezos really sweated every 
customer experience had to be awesome. You could email Jeff and he would find out what happened to your order. And he would, obviously he's crazy, but he would like yell at people to, to make it right. So <laughs> I'm not saying you have to yell at people. There's better ways to do that. But as part of like the brand promise, like since we live in a increasingly commodified world, um, infinite choice, we want to buy from people and from companies that deliver a good promise. I actually think that the internet is empowering consumers in such a way that I don't, uh, companies haven't even started to understand this. You see with like, I've emailed companies or DM companies online and gotten response like a week or two later. And by that point I had purchased from a competitor. So like they're not paying attention to a lot of this. And I think there's a whole bunch of startups building better tools for marketers to be able to, and customer service teams to be able to service users. But at the same time, um, you know, I was ranting about my peers a little bit. I think that we need fresh blood in. There's a generation of marketer who has literally never opened Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and analytics tool. And, and, and they're the ones that are making the decisions of ad budgets and making the decisions of hires. Um, and so there, there needs to be a regime change there. And I think it will slowly happen. And I think we'll see a lot more disruption of, of companies like really getting disrupted by a lot of cool upstarts. Uh, D to C brands are an example where this, you know, this small brand goes on shark tank and they have like $10 million in sales for some CPG product that, you know, a dinosaur company never even thinks about. Right. And who are you going to buy from like this cool, quirky startup of, you know, to this family that's super passionate or like the faceless, you know, dinosaur company that is still spending, you know, money to run ads on Fox news that no one sees. Right. So I do think a balancing function will happen. Another good quick story in 2008, I had a large QSR client, one of the largest, um, quick serve restaurants in America and their food is actually good by the way. Um, and I was sitting there with their CMO and their digital agency. Now I wasn't even their digital agency. I was just their PR consultant and we were doing the annual planning. And this was right when Facebook had launched brand pages. So I had mentioned I wasn't doing digital. So this is not strategic, very tactical. I was, I sent to their CMO, Hey, you guys should build a brand page on Facebook. And the CMO looked at me and he's like, why would my company, I'll just say it, it, it was International Dairy Queen. It's, they're so good at social now. Um, but he said, why would Dairy Queen wanna be on Facebook? And I'm like, well, there's already, I've done research, there's already around 5,000 user created groups with between like 500 up to like 200,000 people that were organic fans of Dairy Queen. And he's like, but if we create a page, they could say negative things about us. I'm like, they're already saying negative things about you. And now you actually can, you know, harness that you can, you could use it to improve. You can, you know, make those relationships right and keep those customers. I was still denied. And the funniest part of all is their digital agency. And we can tie this back into crypto in just a second. Um, their digital agency, which was doing absurd things and they were paying, they were charging like 10,000 a month just to manage their website. Seriously. They, they, to do nothing like you don't need to anyway um they had said social media is a bad idea because you know it's too much work and you know we don't believe in doing things like that you should just be running tv ads and you should just be running these they were building absurdly expensive microsites they went so far as to charge them i, th I think it was almost seven figures to build an advert game where you play in this video game that's in like a Dairy Queen world. No one, no one fucking played it and they weren't accountable for anything. And they just got a huge paycheck from that brand. So anyway, long story short, I made Dairy Queen's uh, official page. I had all the graphics since I was on their PR team, made it look official. I built, I think I was the first one to build a million member QSR Facebook page, 2006 or seven. I forget the year. Um, I wrote a blog post on it somewhere redacting their name, but their digital shop didn't want to do the hard work of social media management. This was before social media management was a codified practice, but they actually were smart enough to know they didn't want to, you know, moderate a Facebook page and do that. They would rather build for their high game. So let's tie this back to crypto and something I sent you guys about. So a few weeks ago, there was something called uh, Canes. It's a big advertising event in France. So in the middle of 
an insane recession, stocks plunging, everyone in chaos, all of the senior marketers in corporate America went to France to give each other awards, eat expensive food, run up an insane tab on their corporate card, and then watch a keynote where, and I, can't, I wish I were making this up, of anyone you could, you could have chosen, you know, Robert Greene, Malcolm Gladwell, the keynote was Gary Vee and Paris Hilton on stage. And so what did they say? This is, it gets so much better. Gary Vee goes, TV ads are dead. No one's watching TV ads. You need to be running NFTs of your brand right now. Like not even with a strategy. He's just yelling at them with NFTs. Um, a few of my friends were there and they were laughing. And anyway, this is hopefully just very high level of the complete insanity and uh, clownery in the marketing sector, whereas all the adults in the room in the marketing sector were, you know, shoring up their, their customer list, were, were doing all the right things, they're, they're not off back patting each other. Because I think the optics of going to, you know, a big party that like, I would have backed out if my company was there. Anyway, so I, sorry, I'm this is really interesting to me because I like, I'm reflecting on most of what you're saying. And almost all of it seems to relate to a good customer experience in the end is what you're striving to do even as a marketer. Like you don't want to overpromise. You it's almost like you want to kind of underpromise and overdeliver, which is the classic phrase, but it seems like the main driving force is that you want and need customers to walk away feeling like they had a satisfying experience with the company. And just from what I've seen generally uh, in cryptocurrency, and I'm sure there's exceptions to every rule, but I know that like I've seen people struggle when it comes to Coinbase, to uh, a lot of cryptocurrency exchanges, and a lot of these, let's say, centralized coins, that there is no customer support at all. Top down, their management thinks marketing is a joke. And in fact, a lot of Silicon Valley companies hold this idea in their head because you know they the, online marketing if you think about it is an engineering problem you know you are you, you are using levers to share messages and creative in return to bring customers to your site or app to complete actions so in just looking at it that way it is an engineering problem so they think you know they can do it or automate it away the problem is unlike you know queries to a database where it's you know automated things being pulled for a financial transaction. Um, at the end of the day, the content and the creative needs to be created by a human. And the the essence of marketing, you, you mentioned before, you know, you were talking, we were talking about like crypto companies tweeting. The problem is social media is not marketing. Social media is a tool. Online ads are a tool. So let's take a step back and you said it, marketing is customer experience. Marketing is you know, the brand promise marketing is in essence, the story that you're telling to the world and your cultural presence. So if I mentioned Disney to you, they have a very clear brand. You, you, you don't even have to hear words in your head or see the logo. If I say Disney, you have a, a clear picture in your head. It could be a lot of different things, but it doesn't matter. You, they've done good enough work that you're aware of their brand and it elicits an emotional response. And so similarly with Coke, right? Coke isn't doing direct response, but you know, you're, they're selling fucking soda water that they tell a great story behind. And it's a part of American culture and it's a social experience. And anyway, the point is, is all of these things, all of these brands, like social doesn't change them. It's another uh, distribution channel for them to do great work. So if you were talking to a crypto company posting stupid meme threads on Twitter is not marketing. It's fine to do, but you're basically just spinning your wheels. You're having a conversation with however many people. It's way less than your follower count. That is not a real number. That's a Potemkin village bullshit number. Um, versus if you were, you know, building a new institution, you would think through, you know, what that brand is in, in, in the eye of the world. And so Coinbase is interesting because they are actually investing in marketing. They ran a Super Bowl ad. What cracked me up about that, I actually thought the Super Bowl ad concept was a small stroke of brilliance. Like their ad firm or their in-house marketers knocked it out of the park. And that's a memorable ad if we're still talking about it. Here's where they screwed up is their marketing team didn't fully brief their SRE team 
of the impact of running an ad during the Super Bowl with the QR code. And so the site went down immediately, which basically is an ongoing joke that their site goes down during highly volatile periods of Bitcoin and also during a Super Bowl ad. So you're basically like reinforcing a brand presence that you're unreliable. So they undermine their own ad despite the creative team doing great work. And you know, I, I think a lot of engineers in Silicon Valley don't respect the marketers. I think sometimes the marketers don't know enough about engineering to have gone down to the SRE team and said, you guys better be prepared for this and given them a real number of you know concurrent uh, hits to the site they would expect. And um, you know at Google, when I was there, we would plan for such things um, well in advance. And of course the scale of, you know what, it's not an excuse. Coinbase, Google, all these companies have smart enough SREs to figure out how to handle that problem. So the, I guess the point being is, marketing and engineering in Silicon Valley needs to work together. They have to respect each other and they have to understand the value of both of these crafts. And if you don't think marketing works, I, I like there are countless companies as a consultant that I went into and tried to help catch up to competitors and they were first with their product and they said, help, we're being lapped by a competitor. We were the originator and they didn't think they needed marketing and they would come to my agency and pay us exorbitant amounts of money to just run a crap ton of ads and creative to try and catch them up and so i i would make the, i'd make comments like well when you notice they were bidding on your brand name in search or when you notice they were running you know they were running tv ads or they were you know running YouTube pre-rolls, why did you decide to do nothing? Like you thought it was okay or you thought it wouldn't work? Like Google's not a trillion dollar company because ads don't work guys. Um, and so it is such an interesting sector because you don't see like the finance team and, and like the CEO team fighting. If they do, there's probably some fraud issues there, but it, it's really an interesting, sometimes depressing, sometimes cool place to be. So one thing you noted there that I kind of want to go back to is you talked about how like in the Coinbase example, it was good work on their marketing creative side, but the lack of communication to the rest of the team left this problem. And so zooming out from that a little bit, I kind of want to go back to crypto marketing and like often these firms are going to external agencies and not internal marketers when they finally do start to do their marketing efforts. And Crypto products are not necessarily easy to understand without like a lot of domain expertise. And so like, what is the responsibility of a marketing firm that has a crypto firm approach them? And like, how much due diligence is expected of a marketer in terms of like verifying the things the company are telling them are remotely true? And like, what does that kind of look like in a case like this? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So in terms of... It sounds to me like you're saying a lot of crypto operations are foregoing an in-house marketing team and basically having an agency be their marketing, their, their marketing uh, department. Especially for smaller ones. I mean, once they get past a certain scale, like Coinbase scale, they'll of course have internal teams, but smaller ones often don't. That is very typical. There are many agencies, good and bad, that function as an outsourced marketing team. Because if you're a young startup, crypto or anything else, um, you might not have headcount for a designer, an analyst, a um, you know a copywriter, uh, someone to build email campaigns and marketing automation, right? So of course, it's if if you're young, it's attractive to get get all of that in one package from a shop. Uh, the question is interesting because I if I were running an agency, I would conduct extreme due diligence and probably have my lawyers and you know maybe my finance friends take a look at what was going on because it could it could all easily come back to you. Like we see what's going on with um it was it mckenzie that was um basically consulting for purdue pharma and pushing you know opiates on america and causing that crisis so that is coming back to that brand and that is pure mercenary work and so you can do mercenary work and make a lot of money today and i think it's an inevitability that that will catch up with you in some way shape or form large or small likely consummate to the level of damage that that company caused in the world. And you can run from it, but not forever. And so, you know, you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to risk as an agency? If you're a great marketing shop or you're a great any kind of consulting shop, you choose your clients. Your clients don't get to choose you. You have a, a, enough of a bench of work and you don't want your associates and your team members to work 
with either assholes or fraudulent companies. And so it tend, what tends to happen here is, and this is across industries, the, the sort of mercenary type shops and their large ones and small ones end up with the mercenary type clients because they won't be taken by the people who've spent 20 years to build a brand as an agency and don't want that brand and that liability on them. Actually, I have a question for you guys. So, so I'm a marketer who's worked in, you know, tech, life sciences, consumer, um, fintech, and I've actually gotten a fair number of offers because I've taken the last few months off work to join various, you know, crypto and, and blockchain companies. And I've done diligence on a few. I've had discussions with them. I actually make it a professional point not to say no to at least talk to someone and hear what they're up to and keep an open mind. But one sticking point that, that, that I've had is basically the, it seems like there's probably, and this is the same thing as the agency, like there may be some sort of career or reputation risk to join a sector where there is perceived fraud at whatever large and small. And I think a problem with that is if you become tagged to that, people who are maybe in a little bit more of a rush might look and the optics might be to them, well, that whole sector is bullshit. We can't hire this person. So like, do you think it's a liability for someone in, you know, a different part of corporate America or the world to, to join one of these firms? Do you think like, and what should they do to make sure that they're conducting the right diligence? And how do you like, yeah, I, I feel like that's probably a good question that a lot of people would be curious about. Well, I, I, I want to start off by saying we previously had Robert Green on to talk about his experience with a cryptocurrency company, um, one that did a famous kind of scam called Blockchain Terminal. Now, Robert went into that as a essentially a consultant, a marketing consultant, and was a third party. So he wasn't working directly he was working and getting paid by them, but he wasn't in-house. Like, he was not directly under them. It was his own company. Um, when they ran off with the money, he had to pay all of his employees out of his own pocket, and he had to, he had to deal with the repercussions of them leaving him holding the bags. But he did deal with it, and ultimately, I don't think that reflects poorly on him. It just means he, like you're saying, it's, I mean, and it's hard to do due diligence in this industry, to be fair. I think uh, the risk presents some level of reward. I mean, clearly, some of these companies have done quite well. I think if you were an early shareholder at uh, Coinbase or something, you're probably a millionaire now. Um, so, I mean, there's obviously, there's obviously W's that can happen here. There's wins that can happen here. And... I don't think it necessarily has to be a reputational risk if you're willing to know that if if you need to accept some level of responsibility, you're willing to do that. Uh, Bennett, I'm interested in what you have to say. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear there's still a certain reputational risk associated with crypto, right? Like that's a contributing factor to why certain more traditional firms have avoided crypto more wholesale, right? Like we talk about Tether and their ever forthcoming audit a bit tongue in cheek a lot of the time. But I think there, there probably is a bit of truth in that the big four are probably somewhat reticent to audit cryptocurrency companies. Oh, yeah. That doesn't mean I think they wouldn't do it in the right circumstances and at the right cost. But I think there probably is a bit of resistance to it. And I think that there probably are cases of people who ended up working for especially some of the more outright scammy companies and ended up in positions where that harmed them personally, especially if they allowed themselves to more get compromised by it, right? Like if you end up in one of the filings as the person who was signing off on the illegitimate things, then that's going to have more harm than if you were just a coder at an exchange trying to work on the matching engine, right? And like even we saw like on Hacker News when Coinbase decided to do a bunch of layoffs to people they promised not to lay off, uh, there were still a bunch of other firms like on Hacker News and stuff who were trying to poach their engineers because the engineers were still in high demand regardless of that. So I think like especially for people with in-demand skills, there might be a bit of risk. But like Cass says, that risk is often compensated in terms of either higher pay or at least a chance of a higher payoff. And I think that many people are largely able to mitigate the risk by maintaining their own moral and ethical standards while they're in the role. It's a fair answer. Um... I, I, I still don't quite know where, where I net out. Um, I, I'm not opposed to it, especially because the particular company I'm talking to now actually has like adults in the room that are backing them. They're not 
you know, fly by night BS. So we'll see what happens. I, I, I guess the other problem for me is like, you guys know, I'm, I'm, I'm not like super, I'm not, I'm not a believer, right? I'm just, I'm not a believer of a lot of it. I, you know, I can understand the digital gold narrative of, of Bitcoin. I actually think that the most impressive part of Bitcoin to me as a marketer is the marketing. Like it's actually, that's a real brand that they market. You can love or hate it. But the, the fact that that is a global brand that doesn't have like a marketing team marketed is actually like, that's like, that should be a textbook case study of um, organizing without organizations and how actual brand in the world arises from it. So from that perspective, it's actually very cool. I have a I have a quick question relating to precisely the company that you brought up before talking about mercenary um, mercenary marketing. Um, you mentioned McKinsey and, uh, you know, shout out. I have a good friend out there who works for them, um, you know. Yeah, they're huge. They're not all bad, obviously. Right. But here's the deal is I, I just want to I in your suggestion, it was like, well, I think if you're going to be a mercenary company like this, ultimately, those decisions are going to come back to haunt you. And it will probably cost you, ultimately, if it's a bunch of bad decisions over and over again, cost you everything. You would, I guess, in a sense, hope. But I'm looking, I'm just looking through the controversy section for Wikipedia on McKinsey. We have Enron, the 2008 financial crisis, Valiant, role in the opioid epidemic, Rikers Island jail complex, fine for insider trading by investment affiliate, accusations of conflicts of interest in U.S. bankruptcies, uh, controversial clients and association with authoritarian regimes. Um, what a list. <laughs> it's a long, long list. They've existed for almost 100 years now. They have 38,000 employees and a revenue of $15 billion last year. And they're the, one, they're the ones who took an ungodly amount of money to try to make CNN Plus a thing. Right. So, so we see how good they are when they're actually given <laughs> a marketing challenge to, to build something and not just do reputation management damage. Look, here, here's the thing about that. Um, so I've worked with a number of tier one companies and our management teams thought McKenzie was a joke. So like there are enough people that are aware of those types of, you know, mercenary type companies and they just won't work with them. They just won't. So I, I'm not going to na name examples of, of some things I've heard, but when you read through the list of Wikipedia and the, you know, the, the things that have been done, I, I, I think that the people at the highest level who are self-aware and, and thoughtful of who they do business with are going to factor that in when, when they make when they make these decisions. And I think ultimately in time, um, McKenzie will not have the cachet that it does. I'm not really impressed by people at McKenzie or Accenture. And like I've had to work with, I've worked with Accenture people while at Google because they're given to me. And I'm like, these like what? So the, the people at these big consulting firms are the people that aren't quite good enough to get hired at the shit hot boutique consulting firm that charges like 5x that. And they're not good enough to go in-house and have equity at like a Google or Facebook. So who are you left with? You're left with, you know, the mid-twit consultants who check boxes and sit in meetings and make stupid diagrams. So yeah, it's like, I, I know they're, big, they're, they're like, seem like a big company in consultancy, but really it's like, you know, like who the fuck? So talking about midwits who check boxes, I, I kind of want to go back to Gary V in his speech at Cannes about the NFTs. Because we've seen several large Fortune 500, Fortune 100, and Fortune 50 even companies launch various poorly thought through, poorly implemented, and poorly marketed NFT projects. Car manufacturers trying to sell car NFTs and getting no bids on them. I think that, that there was a Corvette one, yeah, that did like a special one-of-one one that included the car, and they still couldn't sell the NFT. Like there have been a bunch of other brands that have bought into new experiments like that. And so I kind of want to know what your thoughts are on how a company like that ends up doing a project like that and why so many of them have failed despite having such prominent names behind them. Sure. So a friend of mine, Seth Godin, wrote a book called Meatball Sunday. And so meatballs by themselves are delicious. And an ice cream sundae is also delicious. But you don't put those things together. That's gross. It doesn't work. So what's happening is these companies aren't doing the existing blocking and tackling work they should be 
with existing tools, tactics, channels, users. They frequently have awful websites that are out of date. They don't respond to people on social. They don't, you know, have a good return policy, all of these things. But what is easier than fixing broken processes that are at least in place and kind of work? It is to go and do the new shiny thing that your agency is selling at whatever price tag, because they have basically infinite budget for marketing already. And the agency will put together, you know, a nice compelling package of what they're going to do, whether it's an NFT or last cycle, it was something like an advert game or a microsite or something, you know, some project, some like some or event back in the day. We used to, they used to do like events for PR that were, that were like trying to create spectacle for press. Anyway, at the end of the day, that NFT or, you know, that thing with the high price tag will be packaged up and it will be turned into an award submission for Keynes, where Gary was, or all these other award events. Um, because they're a big brand and they know how to, you know, write compelling copy, it will it, it will be, you know, well put together award. It will seem important. Uh, they'll likely fudge actual ROI from it. Like in my old marketing blog, where I was much feistier, you guys would have loved me. I used to take apart case studies that were clearly bullshit. Anyway, um, th then I got into a big company. I had to stop that site, but they will, then they'll win awards that CMO will put it on his or her resume and they will use that as their next jumping point. So they, they don't leave, these people don't leave their company with, I increased, you know, revenue by, you know, 45% or I increased, you know, our share price, 250%. They leave with, I want, I won this prestigious, you know, New York agency award or, or whatever. And that's what they index on. This is the old guard versus the new guard of marketing. And so that's, that's basically what happens in a nutshell. We also have agencies like seeing dollar signs in their eyes to sell things that are new. And here's actually what bothers me because here's the grift guys. And you've heard this before. Stop me when you've heard this, they go in to the client, the agency goes in even with clients who, who don't necessarily even want to do something. And they say, Hey guys, it's a new thing. It's an experiment. Why don't we allocate just a few percent to try it? You might win an award saying best novel campaign using new technology. <laughs> why, why not put 2% of your net worth into Dogecoin? It's just 2% guys. So basically the, the problem isn't experimentation. As a marketer, you need to be doing a lot of that, especially in a increasingly long tail media landscape with all new ways people are connecting, but your, your competence as a marketer and a finance professional, as a fucking finance professional, even more is to, you have to also be part skeptic and you have to know where the bets make sense and where it's, you know, you're not paid as a manager to say yes to everything. Um, you're, you're paid to make a few good decisions a day. There's a great a video by Jeff Bezos where he talks about why he focuses on sleep and he's like a lot of my peer CEOs like get like three, four hours of sleep. He's like, they're fucking morons. They're spinning their wheels. The only thing you do at the management level, you're paid to make a few good decisions and then let them play out. And so he prioritizes sleep, makes better decisions. And so for our decision making is not a bias to say yes to every single thing you get asked. And I think it is a function of overextended periods of bull markets where remember finance people don't just get FOMO marketers do too, or, you know, maybe, um, you know, business ops teams do too with new software that people are using, whatever it is, you have to be provokingly critical enough to understand where it makes sense to invest. And I'm actually not saying don't try an NFT, but I think the optics, for your brand to like, where like Pepsi is responding to, you know, Coke with not going to make it, or, you know, we all going to make it on, on Twitter. It, it's just like the optics are wrong. Like you're a hundred year old brand. You don't need to do this. You're so far above that level of what should be like, like your, your baseline of, of what you want to communicate. So if you wanted to experiment with NFTs or new technology, what, what good marketing teams have are a skunk works team and they play around in a sandbox in their own tools and they figure out, well, what does this mean? And, and that's a great approach. Um, I was listening to, 
a podcast, the Cartoon Avatars podcast, which I love. They had the Capital One founder on to talk about crypto. And he basically said that. He's like, so I'm like super bullish on the sector, but I didn't know what I didn't know. And now that I played around, I actually understand. And he's like, I don't think there's use cases, but like, I felt like an asshole before. I, I like really didn't understand it. And so, you know, for marketers, it's not saying yes to the some flashy agency trying to charge me a million dollars for a project because I have FOMO and want to win an award. It's your job to understand the technology landscape, to understand trends, to you know run experiments quietly. And then for your actual marketing work, like it, it kills me that, like you said, there's all these top brands issuing NFTs. And if you look at the feedback from people underneath, they're like, we don't want this guys. You know, we want you to fix X, Y, or Z problem. And they don't listen to them. They are, it, it's, it's a disconnect. It's the meatball Sunday. They're putting shit together. That doesn't make sense. Um, I think in America, in corporate America, we have like a triage problem of businesses understanding what to do when Twitter's a great example. They have a huge spam problem have for years and they're screwing around with random circles and features. It's like, guys just fix the spam and bot problem. Like that's a triage from a user experience perspective. Those people don't use the product, so they don't know. But I, I think like that thoughtfulness when you're deciding what you're going to do, whether it's an NFT or whether it's you know, fix your existing customer service. It's like, it, these shouldn't be hard decisions. This is going to be a bit of a digression, but what it's reminding me of is kind of a thing Cass and I have talked about before and we've talked about journalism and media brands is that often you'll see the older and more established brands, the ones that have already gotten to trust, start trying to find ways to cash in on that and exploit their brand, exploit their trust. And I think Forbes is like the clearest example of this, right? They, They're terrible. They're contributed exactly. article section and people saying, I've been in Forbes. I'm like, anyone could be in Forbes. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. Awful. And so they like sacrifice their entire brand in order to like cash in on that. And that's often contrasted against earlier stage ones, newer ones that are still building up that kind of trust and that legitimacy, which need to focus on more of the things you're talking about, making sure that like, things work the way they're supposed to, that the flywheel keeps going as you build. And like what's been interesting for me to tie it back in here is that many of the brands that you've seen do these poorly thought through NFT projects to me often feel like more of like those established brands which are disconnected from feedback, disconnected from their users and are not necessarily getting the feedback to say, this isn't what we want. This isn't the problem we're experiencing. And so because of that, end up launching these kind of things. Yeah, totally. And taking off my like branding hat and everything, putting on my SEO hat, their Forbes 30 under 30 list is the most brilliant thing they've ever done from a, mar from a, a search marketing perspective. So first of all, those first 30 people, guess what happens when they publish that? All 30 of those people blog, link back, put on their corporate website that I was in this list, they linked to Forbes. Forbes is like, wait, this is smart. Let's do like 600 under 30 and do it for every sector. And so basically they've created the most brilliant organic link building campaign in the world. And it always works. And it's like, I, I, I am actually, I think it's silly. You, we all think it's silly. They're like clearly pandering for links and attention, but it's brilliant because the mid twits that play the status games that every, all of us, speaking right now, we're never going to do that. It's not what we do. There's like two types of humans. You either play status games or don't. And so it, it just, it cracks me up. Um, the other thing about the Forbes contributed pieces thing. So I, I used to care about this because I'm a marketer and I don't like when people like, like over oversell or over aggrandize with bullshit, but it dawned on me one day, it's idiots fooling idiots. If you're not smart enough to know that Forbes allows just anyone to run a byline or Business Insider, I don't know if they still do that, then those people were probably not gonna be like fun to work with or do business with. Um, I'm not saying it's right to scam them that way. I'm just saying like they're in their own little circle and like you're sort of self-selecting out of getting to work with certain people or on certain projects at, at, at a different level. And I think that, I, I think we're, we evolved to be really attuned to, to reputation. Reputation might be the most important thing we have. That's why I wrote a post this week on the fact that the idiot growth hackers who are doing, you know, these long threads on 40 mental models they copied from Wikipedia. I'm like, dude, you don't look good. You look like a web spammer. Like no one smart is going to follow you. You're probably just gonna get blocked. You're, you're gonna 
attract a whole bunch of other people who are also in this pyramid scheme of online engagement to try to sell ebooks or whatever their outcome is. It's just like, the more I spend worrying about this, like I'm more worried about the things you guys usually talk about with the systemic risk in, in, in crypto and stable coins. Like I think those are meteor issues, whereas my marketing issues are like, they're further down on like the, 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 the pole of importance. Really, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a marketer. I'm, it's not as existential. We're telling people to buy shit. We're not holding people's net worth, right? So it, it is funny though, because it's funny who it fools. It, it just cracks me up. You're touching on a topic that we've discussed before, but I think it's important because, again, this is like a battle within that I'm like, I want to believe that all of these people will have repercussions for doing incredibly stupid things. But then I remember that, like, we live in this attention economy. But and it's not repercussions for, for, for that sort of fakery. I think it is dings on your reputation and optics personally in such a way that actually you you never even understand the opportunities that you lost. Like you don't even you don't even know what you've missed because no one's ever going to tell you unless someone who's your friend says hey, hey like or is looking out for you and says hey the optics of this aren't great. So again the status game thing like when you when you engage in that like we all know people that it's obvious to me as a marketer where they have like 300,000 followers on like Twitter, Instagram, and no engagement. So it's clear they have bots. It's clear they have bot followers. There's tools you could see that. But the optics for me of seeing that person with 300K followers and no engagement are worse than that person had 500 followers and no engagement. I would think way more of them. So they're accomplishing the opposite. And I, I understand, you know, there maybe are certain people that will be fooled by that. But again, I think it's like, you're so relegating all these people to a sort of level of competence and ultimately a level of responsibility, right? Like, like Google DeepMind isn't going to hire these people to, to work on AI. They're, they're not, right? Sure. Uh, Lockheed Martin probably is, is going to know better than to, to bring in someone. So it's like, yeah. I understand that. But I guess what I'm saying is from what I've seen in this industry is that there's people who are doing, and I'm talking outside the scope of fake bots or whatever, fake engagement. I'm talking people who are straight up giving financial advice and then dumping on their followers, stuff like that, or like hypothetically like saying they're raising money for their grandma, but then using that money to like buy NFTs or something like that, hypothetically. But like, let's just say that these things happen. You would expect these people to vanish after they do these horrible things. And instead, what I'm seeing is that they stick around and they're able to find some audience that's like devoted to them, which is crazy to me. Like I'm it's still like it's otherworldly that they're still able to make a living, whether or not it's it may not be like the hundreds of millions of dollars they could be making if they were actually good. Uh, but they're still making a living doing that. And I and I guess that's my issue. Yep. We've scaled the Jordan Belfort experience. Right. <laughs> and one, one other comment. Um, I was talking about this with another friend of mine who is like one of my, one of my smartest friends. He's, he programmed the AlphaGo, like Google AI stuff. He's like way smarter than I will ever be. Um, and we were having a discussion about crypto because he's like curious about it. And um, I was curious his thoughts. And he basically, he made the point that the optimistic take of a lot of this is you have taken the cohort of people who would have been bad actors in the productive parts of the world and the economy, and you've put them in this sort of isolated, sectioned off, you know, carnival circus. And so because they're there, they have been quarantined there are obviously scammers everywhere, but we sort of built this honeypot for grifters. And so his take was actually don't regulate it. Let the people who want to grift go to the honeypot and keep them out. Of, and it, he doesn't understand finance or, you know, all the nuance that you do. He's, he's not like purely philosophical. Like he, he has no like finance or regulatory background, but he was like, he was like, that's like my sort of thinking and systems take that, um, you know, would it make regular financial markets like better would it and i don't know that that's the answer too because there's still plenty of bullshit and grifting and regular trad five so but it, it was an interesting perspective
I, I, it reminds me of uh, <laughs> of George Carlin. He had, he had a bit where he would talk about all the worst predators and like worst criminals who are definitely going to be repeat offenders. You don't kill them. You don't you don't do some like crazy appeals thing. You you section off the four square states and you put each different kind in each one of these states, and that's how you take care of the problem. And then for entertainment purposes, open them up. Uh, to each other and allow them to just battle it out. Um, <laughs> that is some Hunger Games style shit, and I would watch it. Um, but yes, okay. So uh, Bennett, any last uh, questions here before we uh, wrap it up? I think to just bring it back together, what takeaway do you think a crypto marketer listening to this episode should leave with that will allow them to do more responsible marketing? Yeah, it's it's a hard question. I mean, I feel like a lot of those people are being pressured aggressively for users, capital, whatever else. Um, I can't imagine at some companies that that's a fun job. It probably seems like 24-7 stress given the amount of marketing legwork that is required. And a lot of them work, we know they work really hard. Like, I'm not talking about the, the spammers who are programming NFT bots, but like, even if they're shipping ads that overpromise and like creating videos that are crazy or doing, you know, the crypto.com arena sponsorship, which is insane. Like they are doing work. Like no one can say that those people aren't working. Like one would hope they could do more productive things. But um, I would just say from a personal reputation standpoint, make sure that, you know, nothing you do could end up coming back to bite you. I mean, if you work wherever you work next, it's, you know, the story you tell, they'll likely understand. But like, I, I would personally not want to be in a situation where I was marketing like a Terra or a Celsius. Um, I don't know how you get away from that ever. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like working at Theranos. I mean, even if you didn't know, maybe you kind of a little bit did. I mean, there'll always be those question marks in the air. And I, I'm not saying you can't work past it, but like it would suck in every new business dealing for the rest of your life. You have to explain this one thing and it would just drive you nuts after a while. It's like, it's not worth it. So I would, I, I would be cautious there and you know, I, I also think that it's a great job market. If you're a talented digital marketer, which all these crypto marketers are, there's no shortage of companies that need talent. So if you love cryptos and you want to meme all day with, you know, crypto Twitter, great, say. But if you wanted to try something else and, you know, even for this point in the cycle and go back when things are bumping again and it's more fun, you know, I, I don't think you'd have a problem um, getting more work, especially if, um, you know, the crypto marketers are acquiring good skills. A lot of them are better at community management and, you know, social, for example, than a lot of the tra traditional marketers who just all try to copy Wendy's, right? So um, they can they can meme, they actually, you know, know how to know how to write. Um, a lot of them are nice people. I'm friends with, you know, Brad and Neeraj. He's in comms, not marketing. But there, there's good people in the sector who believe in what they're doing too. What else? I wanted to ask you guys a couple questions if we could, because we've been friends on Twitter for so long. Um, ben and Cass, how did you guys, I, I don't, I'm not sure I've heard this. How did you two first connect? What was like the impetus for, for, for you guys starting this show and you kept doing it for so long? I love to hear the stories of, of the Genesis. And, and the reason is you, you've been successful and done it for so long. It's like, like what, what about the origin story was, was right to, to create this? All of it was happenstance, I would I would say, and mistakes. So that tells you how competent we are. But yeah, I'll I'll start us off in terms of uh, we met because we both uh, were essentially skeptical of Bitfinex and Tether around the same time, and then uh, someone who I assume our audience is familiar with and who you were familiar with, Adam, uh, at Bitfinex, uh, B I T uh, F I. N-E-X-E-D, for anyone out there who doesn't follow him. Um, he kind of had to go away for a little bit. There were some threats, uh, some lawsuit threats, some doxing threats. Uh, so he, or she, I guess I'll say, um, briefly took off. And Bennett and I both decided that was our time that we needed to kind of step up and start talking more about this because it felt like there was no one to talk about the elephant in the room anymore. And everyone else was just kind of like, well, see you later, Bitfinext. And we were like, no, 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 no. We need to talk about this more. But then, yeah, uh, eventually blossoming into this is a whole other story. Yeah, which basically happened because 
The New York Attorney General finally ended up settling with Bitfinex and Tether over a variety of their misrepresentations. And Cass and I read the settlement and thought this is a shocking document showing incredible corporate malfeasance. And Crypto Twitter read the press release and said, look at this, Bitfinex and Tether are cleared. And Cass and I... By the way, anything (laughs) will be spun positive by CT. Literally, they will spin any. It's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, and we had both written about this and written a ton of articles on Bitfinex and Tether. But we recognized that there was people who would prefer to hear the story of Bitfinex and Tether over audio. So we decided to record two or three episodes on Tether since we knew the story pretty well. And then we kept doing more episodes. And now we're here. (laughs) I love it. I, I think you two have been a consistently strong and interesting and thoughtful uh, voice in the sector that's sorely needed. You know, so much of the trade media just cheerleads and that's not it's not trade media, it's pumping. And so if you want to have a real industry, I actually think if you are the most bullish person on crypto, you should be really happy there are thoughtful people like yourself. I think Chris Dixon or whoever that guy said they need better critics. I'm like, what are you talking about? Your critics are, are very bright people. <laughs> I've read media my entire <laughs> life. I've, you know, been inquisitive about every these are smart humans putting together cogent arguments with data and with, you know, actually looking at the facts and and, and pouring through documents and and it's it's like it just it, it it blows my mind. But you you want critics. You can't have something where there is no counterbalance. So um, I'm such a fan. I I want to come back on the show sometime and ask you more questions. I know we're at the end of the hour though. So no, yeah, we would we would love to we would love to do that uh, and and have you have you back on and go more over that. Uh, it's you know inter- people who are doing interviews generally don't jump into being interviewed but i i would be i would be down adam uh, anytime so awesome yeah bennett you are you are such a sport i think that you like you embracing all the memes about you years ago i'm like i immediately <laughs> want to be friends with him he has a sense of humor he doesn't take stupid shit too seriously i mean it's been fun being friends with you online thanks adam same <laughs>